Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we speak with the New York Times bestselling author, Crystal Sutherland. Crystal was a student when she first experienced heartache and turned to writing to soothe her. As an aspiring writer, she wrote a number of books, but it was her fourth book, Chemical Hearts, an anti-romance young adult novel, which was picked up by a publisher and was later optioned and released by Amazon Prime in 2020, starring Lily Reinhardt. Crystal has gone on to write a number of books, including a semi-definitive list of worst nightmares and House of Hollow. And in this interview, we speak to Crystal about writing young adult books. We talk to her about how she builds her characters and how she's honed her craft over the years. Crystal shares how she's learned to plot and she goes into details about how she visualizes her stories. This was a wonderful chat with a talented and open writer. And this is actually from our archives. We interviewed Crystal a few years ago. But without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Crystal Sutherland. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Crystal, welcome to the stage. Come on down. <laughs> I'm so pleased to be here chatting to you both tonight. After coming to the writer's hours, as the days get shorter, it's been a really nice community to be a part of. So very happy well, to be here this evening. Well, we're very honored to interview you. And a question that we've been asking many of our guests of late are, if we could be holding this interview at any venue in London or maybe somewhere in the world, where would we be right now? I am going to have to teleport us to the Sydney Opera House because it is impossible to get into Australia. And I think that is the only way that I'm uh, getting home for Christmas is if we can magically teleport there. So yes, we are in the Sydney Opera House right now in my imagination. It's a venue that fits you. It's, uh, thank you. It's a fitting venue for you. Very grand. And um, you're from Townsville, Australia, which I love the name of it. And I'm curious to know what attracted you to the very, it's, sorry, it's also the thing I read about Townsville, Australia, is that it's never experienced a winter. Yes, yeah, so it's a, <laughs> a very tropical part of the country. Basically, it has monsoon season and dry season, no, no winter or summer, essentially. But you like rain and you like grey and so you came to London? <laughs> Not quite. I'm, a, I'm more of a tropical fish, I think. I prefer the warmth, but it was always my kind of childhood life goal to escape from Townsville. So I'm about as far, as, as far away as I can be right now in London. We're very glad. And that's how we met. We met in London. Yeah, we did. So we read a story that on your last day of school, you turned to your English teacher and you tell her that you wanted to be an actress. And then she turns back to you and says, I think you should write instead. Mm. Is that where your writing career started or did it start somewhere further back from that moment? It's really surprising how impactful that moment was where I had never really considered being a writer before. I hadn't thought that that was a real thing that people did. Like actress just seemed much more 
promising at the time. And I'm so glad that she had the kind of foresight to turn to me that day and say that. And I was terrified of this woman, by the way, as well. I had spent two years with her as my English teacher and she was very, she was kind of my first editor in a way. She was tough on me. She pushed me to work harder and become better. And I always thought that she kind of didn't like me or didn't think I was very good. And this was the kind of first real vote of confidence from someone that I really respected as a creative. And that really kind of was the inception that seeded the idea that I could be a writer and that maybe I should explore it. And then, yeah, it kind of just grew from there. And do you remember what about your writing that your English teacher saw in you or what about you that she saw in your work? Yeah, I think I was always a voracious reader as a a kid. I think that is the number one thing for being a good writer is how much you read. And I think I just, I kind of soaked up so much what I was reading and was putting that back into my writing and not even necessarily realizing that I was, you know, quite a good writer for a teenager. And she obviously saw that, saw something and encouraged me to run with it. And I'm very grateful to her for seeing that. And it was just one tiny moment that kind of changed everything. Mm. And so now can you take us from that moment, your teacher gives you a huge compliment, which is pivotal in, in your writing career, to you writing Chemical Hearts. What was that time period? Was it, I imagine it wasn't the next day, then you got start writing this, you know, great young adult novel, or was it? What, what was the step between the teacher and then you starting to write that book? So Chemical Hearts, even though it's my first published novel, was the fourth manuscript that I wrote. So between kind of ending high school and becoming a published author, I wrote four whole books. The first one was the kind of thing I would read out now at a comedy night to make people laugh because it is truly horrendous. Basically, I'd taken everything that I liked about every fantasy book that I'd read and tried to mash it all together into this one story. So there are like vampires on hoverboards and there are wizards in spaceships and it's really, yeah, there's a lot going on. I love the imagination though. Yeah. (laughs) Why not just put everything into one book? Why has no one done this before? And then that kind of taught me the very rough kind of bones of how to write a book. And it took me kind of two, three more goes before I wrote something that I was kind of proud of. Because you look at these published novels when you are a beginning writer, and then you look at what you are capable of producing, and there's just such a chasm between those things. And you're like, why? I don't understand why what I'm doing is not producing the same things that I'm reading. And it's only by going back and doing it again and doing it again and practicing and pushing yourself and you know reading books on writing and working with other writers that you eventually do kind of like hone these tools that allow you to kind of produce what you are hoping to produce and this is something that i still struggle with right like you have this mm-hmm. perfect idea in your head and then the struggle is translating it into a, an imperfect book. No book is a perfect representation of the story that you start with. But I did get better at that over time, at crafting something 
that was closer to what I hoped it would be. And then Chemical Hearts was the first one that I really felt confident in. And that was the one that I took out to agents and tried to get published. Mm. And how did you know those other three before Chemical Hearts weren't ready yet? I think I got to being about 90% finished with them. And then I just reached such a sense of frustration with them that they weren't right. I knew that they weren't right. Their story wasn't working or, you know, there was some clunkiness and then I would kind of just lose interest or I would lose the faith or the market would change and I would decide to do something different. And then Chemical Hearts was this kind of different beast altogether. Like I knew when I was writing it that it felt different to what I had written before. And I was quite determined with that one. I was like, I'm not going to put this one away in a drawer. This one feels like the right thing to take out at the right time. And I've grown my skills as a writer and I felt confident in that one that it was worth giving it a shot. Hmm. So fascinating. So can you tell us, we've talked about Chemical Hearts a lot. Can you just tell us briefly, what is Chemical Hearts about? Chemical Hearts, I call it kind of an anti-romance young adult novel. Like I tried to take a lot of the the tropes that we're used to seeing in uh, maybe a lighter, fluffier young adult novel and kind of flip them around. So there, instead of there being a manic pixie dream girl who comes along and kind of fixes the broken uh, male character, he conceptualizes her as a manic pixie dream girl but then she doesn't fit into any of these kind of neat boxes that he hopes she will be. So it is the story of these two teenagers meeting each other at at what is a very difficult time in one of their lives and the way that they just kind of crash into each other and all of the, the chaos that ensues from that. I love that term, Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Can you just, if anyone who doesn't know what that is, could you just explain it quickly? Yeah, it's a trope that is especially common in, I would say, rom-coms, where there's this, like, idealised version of a female character who is exactly kind of what it says on the box. She's manic, she's pixie, and she's a dream girl. And usually she she exists to kind of uh, to fix the main character, who is usually a man, usually kind of a boring guy who's not got much going on in his life. And then this woman comes in and kind of explodes his life and like makes it interesting. And I think another story that does a good job of deconstructing the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope is 500 Days of Summer, where this guy kind of wants wants this love story with the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. And she kind of just refuses to give him exactly what he wants. And you obviously hit a chord with a lot of readers. It, the book did very well. It was published across multiple countries. It was turned into a movie. And I'm always aware that there are writers who may be a little bit early on in their journey, and it seems as though you achieve success very quickly, or, or not quickly, but at a young age. And the question is, I suppose, what happens after that? Do you roll off into the sunset with a perfect life? Or what happens to your writing after that? How is that last? I suppose it's been a decade or so, or less than a decade. Yeah, it's been, so my, the first book came out in 2016. So it's been about four years now since Chemical Hearts. And then over a decade now since I decided that I was going to be a writer. So a big chunk of time in the beginning there where you are just kind of working in the dark, right? You're never sure if 
those first manuscripts are going to be published. And that feels kind of terrifying while you're doing it. You're like, I don't know if this is worth it. Am I wasting my time? And then once you do get a book published, it's a whole new kind of terror of like, what, what next? And then I think the goalposts really shift for me every time I write something new. It was always get a book published. As soon as I get a book published, I'm going to be so happy and my life will be perfect. And then lo and behold, you get a book published and your life is not perfect and you still have aspirations to write something different, to write something better, you know, to get a movie made, to get whatever. So it's always just about these kind of shifting goalposts and and shifting expectations that you have for yourself. I think people talk about second book syndrome quite a lot where you spend so much time working on this first novel and you work on it at your own pace and you work on it as I said before, without ever knowing that it's going to get published. And then all of a sudden there are all these expectations on you. You have a deadline and you have to work within a, a time frame, and you have to deliver much faster than you did the first time around. And I didn't so much have second book syndrome as I did have third book syndrome. So I sold my first two books in one deal. And then when it came time to write my third one, I found myself kind of adrift. I didn't really know what I wanted to work on next. I wasn't kind of sure what direction I wanted my career to go in. And there is this kind of gap now between my second book and my third one coming out where I did feel, I guess, a little lost because I wasn't sure what happened after those two books. But I'm happy to report I am feeling much more back on track now that I have a new book coming out and I'm working on a new project. But I think... I just assumed that it would be kind of smooth sailing. Like you get a book published and then you're an author and you have a career and it's fine, but it really is about taking it one project at a time. Thank you for sharing that. We love to ask that question to writers because I suppose it's interesting to hear the different, the different take on the realities of publishing and becoming an established author. And and what you said really resonates with this idea we've heard of trading up your problems. Exactly. Switching to different types of problems. I have a quick question, Parl, before you, you, dig into the next one. So you said you, your book deals, it was for your first two books. Yes. Now, did you have the second one written or was it just the first manuscript? How did that come about? Yeah. So I've sold all of my books in, so three books I've sold in different ways. So the first two I sold as a two book deal. The first book was completely finished. And then as we were about to sell this deal, my agent kind of called me up and was like, you need to write me a paragraph idea for your next book so that we can kind of pitch it at the same time. And so I had kind of an idea on the back burner that hadn't started. I just wrote a paragraph out and that is how we sold that second book. And I was like, oh, I guess I have to write this book now. So that's kind of how much thought went into what my second book was going to be. Yeah, pretty crazy. And then my third book, we sold on a partial. So I had written the first kind of 30,000 words. We took it to my editor and said, do you like this? Will you give me some money for it? And they agreed to. So wow, good work to your agent for selling that second one in. They must have really loved the first one. That's great. I I kind of wonder if that's a lot of pressure. To me, it feels like you have to have to deliver that paragraph before you're even sure you want to write it. Yeah, in retrospect, I probably would have liked kind of more time to decide what I would have liked to work on. And I'm sure there was Mm. scope for me to change. I mean, it was very loosely outlined, like it's going to be a story about a girl who 
goes out and faces her fears. But I really went into it with really not knowing anything about the story beyond what I'd written in that paragraph and then having to kind of feel my way through. So it was definitely a different experience to writing the first book, which I had had much longer to write the draft and no deadlines. And It became real. That's what I'm hearing. It It became a real job. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing all of that. I would love to sort of dig into some of your writing process and how you come about with the stories. And I've definitely read in a few places that, that Chemical Hearts was inspired by heartache. And I'm curious about how much and how you take experiences from your real life into fiction. How much of it inspires? How do you build it? Do you build dialogue from real life conversations? Hmm. I think it's a real patchwork. So there's no character who I would point to and say this character is based on me or this character is based on someone in my life it is really a patchwork like I have a a notes section on my phone where I jot down stories that people may have told me or anecdotes that I may have heard or just like interesting things that have happened to me or to people in my life and they may just sit there for years but some of them eventually find their way into this kind of rich tapestry that you begin to build when you are working on a book. So it could be things like, I don't know, things that your characters like or things, memories that your characters have or relationships that they have with people. But it really is drawn from multiple different sources. So, you know, a friend may read your book and see one tiny spark that came from them but really you're pulling from multiple different people and multiple different things that happen to you in your life. That's how, how it is for me anyway. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, I'm curious if your uh, ex ever contacted you after hearing that there was some inspiration from that breakup. Um, uh, I think um, it was less, less inspiration and more kind of therapy for me, I suppose. Like I was a student at the time and I was kind of, very immersed in my in my studies and writing became this kind of therapy that I did early in the morning and late at night. So I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning and write for two hours before I had to go to class. And then it would be the last thing I did before bed as well. And I haven't really written a book like that since where it just kind of poured out of me through necessity. After this book, it became more of a, you know, the necessity was that it was my job. But this book, The Necessity, was a kind of catharsis, I suppose, getting the words and the feelings out on page. So the story is kind of nothing like what was happening to me at the time. I didn't draw directly from the own the plot of my own life, if that makes sense. It was really the feelings of, uh, of kind of having an idea of what you thought a relationship should be and then it not kind of panning out the way that you had hoped. I was really affected by Henry's heartache and his sort of, his love for Grace. And actually, turning, I'd love to turn to some of the characters that you built. So from Chemical Hearts, Grace and Henry have this beautiful love affair, trouble but love affair. And then Esther Solars is also a really fascinating character from your second book. I wonder if you can tell me, I don't know if any of the characters or all of the characters, if you can tell me anything around that process that you went through of building up those characters. Did they... Were they fairly fully formed as you created them? Did you take time to explore them and define them? I think I really discover characters through the writing. 
And I remember seeing in interviews before I was really writing books, like as an early author, how some writers would say, you know, characters can sometimes write themselves. And that made no sense to me at the time, like how it's coming out of your brain. How does that work? How does the character write themselves? But it really, for me now, I do feel that, like you discover these people in the process of writing. So I don't do things like character profiles or anything beforehand. This is actually something I've been doing because I did NaNoWriMo last month for November. And in the last kind of week, I really just, I ran out of plot, but I was determined that I was going to get my 50,000 words. So instead of kind of progressing the plot forward at all, every day I woke up and I kind of thought about a particular character and their past. And then I would just write kind of flashbacks or important memories that had happened to them that inform who they are at the particular moment that we are reading about them. And for me, that is what gives the richness to the character. But those are things that I didn't know about them before I wrote those memories. And it's through that kind of the writing and the building, and especially through the editing as well, when you kind of have a clearer picture of who they are and their relationships with everyone else in the book, that they really start to come to life. But they are quite, I guess, transparent in the beginning. They're they're definitely not rich and colourful and you do build them over time. I see. But you do it naturally through the process. That's really interesting. Mm. I wonder, because you're now in the process of writing this fourth book, Mm. which is still very early on. Has a lot changed even from book three to book four? Have you noticed that you have a different approach? Is there anything in particular that you've learned or that you, you consider differently? I think the for me, the biggest difference happened between book two and book three in that I was very much a, I don't plan anything. I just dive in. I feel my way through the story. My first two books, I didn't have any kind of plotting done beforehand. And that results in very messy drafts that are very unwieldy. And I just struggled to keep it all in my head without some kind of visual aid. And so now I try to be more planned before I go in. And I actually, I thought I'd show you, this is a graph that I did before I started writing House of Hollow at all. This is very rough of like the emotional roller coaster I want readers to go on. And the plot points that I need to hit along the way. And does that say Hero's Journey on the left? It does say Hero's Journey on the left. So I was thinking about the points that happen in a hero's journey and kind of how to graph those onto this emotional odyssey that I'm hoping to achieve. And this is another one. This is a way that TV writers often plot out the journey that their characters go on the circle. So I... This is how I visualize my stories now. Before I start, I get on my iPad and I kind of jot down these points that I'm trying to trying to achieve along the way. And inevitably, it's messy and you lose the plot. But um, sure. this, for me, is a, a great reference to come back to while I'm in the weeds. Yeah, it's form, not formula. Was that book three? So House Apollo, that House those Apollo, graphs are Yeah, from? House Apollo. And, go ahead, Paul. My question was simply, is there any particular methodology? Because there are quite a few and everything you're showing me seems wonderfully, I love it. It seems familiar. Are there any particular tools that you recommend or resources? So a book that my agent recommended to me before I started writing House of Hollow was something called The Bestseller Code, 
which sounds like a terrible um, self-help book, but was actually really interesting. And it's about, it's these two computer scientists who have analyzed like a, a thousand New York Times bestsellers to see what kind of similarities and differences they have. And using artificial intelligence, they kind of look at things like plot and story and character and the way language is used. And I thought that was really interesting. So that was something that I have kind of employed a little bit in my um in my graph making here where you're, you know, you're trying to achieve this kind of emotional roller coaster, if you will, especially in these kind of fast paced thrillery books that I've been trying to write for the past couple of years. Mm. So that's a, a good resource I could recommend. So okay. So that and that was my question really. So those graphs are inspired in part by that book. So we'll send, we'll gather everything that comes up in this conversation to send out. And I mean, I, you can say no, Crystal, but if you're up for sharing any of those graphs with oh, us, yeah. we would love to, and we can send them out for us in case anyone wants to model it, but don't feel obliged to. No, but for sure. I'm happy to it. share. I'll uh, have to block out a couple of spoilers for House of Hollow, but yeah, I'm happy <laughs> to, share, to share the graphs. They were really useful to me in writing House of Hollow, so yeah. Hmm. And so how would you use that as you go about writing? So you do that before you started, and then you jump in with the writing. Will you revisit these? Do you put them on your wall? How will you use these to guide the writing? I definitely revisit, revisit them. So this graph, that the up and down one that I showed you, I probably redid that about four or five times as the story evolved and as these kind of set pieces that I knew I wanted to hit kind of changed within the story. So I usually know probably, you know, five points going into a book of things that I must hit. So usually that would be the inciting incident, if you will, that gets the whole story going. Something in the middle, I know, usually something towards the end. Like these are the reasons that I want to write the book in the first place, right? These are the things in the story that are drawing me into the story, and the rest is just about how do you connect to those things in an interesting way that builds mm. upon and draws you into the detail of the whole. Mm. And so you've touched on your editing process a little bit, and whether it's refining characters through the editing process or the story, how many, for your last three books, do you know how many drafts you went through? For the first... 30,000 words of House of Hollow, I probably redrafted it like five times, four times, like from scratch, I would say. I just, I had a rough idea of what the story should be, but I just didn't know my way into it. And my agent is really wonderful. She's a really great editorial agent. And she kept coming back to me and saying, you know, you've got a really great kernel there. You've got something, but it's still not right go back and do it again. And by the end, I was like, damn you, just take it to someone. But she was so right. And I'm so glad that she pushed me to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it because I got there in the end, I got it to where I wanted it to be. But then beyond that, so once I found my way into the story, the rest of the writing was much easier. So the draft of the second two thirds of the book required you know one major edit and then many kind of minor edits with my editor after that but nowhere near the kind of heavy lifting of rewriting from scratch 
that the first third of the book needed. Mm. I have another question on editing because it came up in the group here. Did you leave any space between when you finish a draft and when you start with the editing? We kind of had a debate in the group. Do you sit on it, put it in the drawer for a month? Or what do you do? Did you go straight into it? So I'm not sure if this is a blessing or a curse, but my editor is very slow. So um, it usually is a, a few months before I get my edit back. And I do not touch it in that time. I don't look at it. I don't think about it. I might jot down a note here or there, but I don't open that document and I don't get back into the weeds of it because I need a break. After I finish the first draft, I need a rest. I need to like read things to replenish the fuel, the words inside my brain, because usually I just, like, I cannot write another sentence. So I find it's like sowing a field and then harvesting. You can't just so immediately again, you need to wait, give some time, give some space. And I really think that that is such a valuable part of the process is giving your work and yourself some space and time. Mm. Oh. Self-doubt. This is a, something that many of us have as humans, also as writers. What's your relationship with self-doubt? I have come to understand that self-doubt is just part of the writing process at least for me, like I will get 80% of the way through a project and I will hit a wall where inevitably, like this has happened to me with each of my projects and I'm about, you know, 55,000 words into my new project now. And I know that in another 10 or 20, I'm going to think the whole thing needs to be burned to the ground. And it's just, I'm coming to understand it's like running a marathon, right? I've never run a marathon, but I've heard marathon runners talk it's a great about. Metaphor to use. <laughs> I've heard marathon runners talk about hitting the wall where they just feel like they can't go any further. They're not going to finish. Why did they ever think that they could? And I think many writers hit this point, and this is published writers, this is unpublished writers, this is everyone hits this point where they have the same thoughts. I'm never going to finish this. I'm not good enough. Why did I think that I was? Why did I think I could do this? And then I think the difference is when you are writing professionally and you're writing to a deadline is you don't have a choice but to push through that and just keep showing up at your keyboard, keep putting the words down. And then inevitably, once you kind of get over the hump, you kind of do come back to yourself a little bit and um, you can push through the self-doubt. That's inspiring, actually. It's nice to think because, you know, you join us at Writer's Hour and many of us are in despair of, of the state of our writing. And it's comforting somehow to know that we're not alone and that you're there with us, even though you've published X number of books and you're feeling similar things to us. I saw yeah. this wonderful quote recently. I'll have to put this in the chat, the exact words and who it was by. But it was by an author and she said, I don't so much write a book as I sit up with it as I would a dying friend. You know, I go into the room... I hold its hands, hold its hand. I feel bad for its many disorders and I hope it will get better. Like that is how she described the process of writing. And I've never felt so seen before in all my life. It's, yeah, it's holding the hand of a dying friend and hoping it will get better. Uh, and holding that space for it. And I guess that is part of what we try to do with the writer's hour sessions is just create that space. You can have a crappy day of writing. You can have a great day. 
And what's really nice is you've been joining us for those writer's hour sessions, which is cool. And we're curious, I mean, you, you know, you've written, you were working on your fourth book during the sessions. What have those sessions given you? Is it just that space and time? But, you know, someone might look to you and say, well, you've written three books. Maybe you don't need the writer's hour cadence. Mm. What does that give you? The writer's hour, the first time I've felt productive all year. Well, since the pandemic began, I think, because it gives you, or it gives me anyway, permission to not be doing anything else except writing for that hour, this kind of sacred hour. And this year has been so noisy and so distracting and so so kind of just busy in its emptiness that having this one or three really hours across the day where you know that you don't need to be anywhere else, you don't need to be looking at the news, you don't need to be doing anything else, just gives you permission to sit down and write. And it's also so nice to be part of a community again as well. I think writing is a very lonely endeavor sometimes, and especially this year when you can't go out and be with other writers. It's so nice just to see other people writing along with you, sometimes suffering with you. So you know you're not suffering alone. You can see people kind of frowning at their screens and just, <laughs> it's true. Oh, it warms my heart to know like oh, I'm not the not the only one. And it stops you from being distracted as well. So I have been on writer's hour before and like picked up my phone and thought, oh no, I shouldn't be doing this because I'm being held accountable right now. I'm gonna put my phone down and get back into my words. <laughs> A little, you feel a little dirty. You're like, I yeah. shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Someone yeah. has caught me procrastinating and I feel bad and I have to go back to my work. That's lovely yeah. to have you write with us. It's great. Yeah. And if anyone listening hasn't come to Writer's Hour, it's a, a free writing session we do three times a day. So yeah, writershour.com if, if you want to go. We'll share a link to it too. I would love to turn the chat to YA market. In any conversation I have with agents and editors, about the YA market. They talk about how it's a little bit difficult at the moment. It's changed, it's evolved. Retailers are struggling to place YA books, young adult books. And I'm curious about how much you let the market and the sort of commercial side of things impact your writing. So with both House of Horrors and the book that's coming out that you're writing at the moment, are you just going with the story inside or are you also watching what's out there? Very much just going with the story inside. I think if you're trying to write to the market, you are like two or three years behind the market at all times. By the time you write your book, sell your book, edit your book, publish your book, two years have gone by, three years have gone by. And what was popular three years ago is now no longer popular. So if you are trying to write for the market, you're always going to lose. And so you just have to write the story that compels you. Write the story that you want to read and hope that it will find a wider audience of other people who want to read that same story. Thank you. I wonder, I wonder if you have any thoughts on the definition of young adult, because sometimes that can confuse some writers and actually writing has become a lot darker in young adult over the years. I wonder if you have any thoughts around the demarcation of what young adult is and when does it become adult? I think the line is becoming much more blurry, certainly. Ten years ago, it was a very different landscape to what it is now. And I think so much more crosses over into adult. There is this very blurred line. It used to be just, you know, a marketing term, a place for bookstores to place something in a store for young adults. 
And now we see such a broad range of genres within young adults, such a broad range of age ranges. For me, I just kind of think that I, I'm writing for a generally kind of teen to young adult audience. And that means kind of certain restrictions, I suppose, around language, around content, but also I am aware of crossover appeal. So I do want to kind of appeal to readers who may be older, maybe to the parents of young adults as well, who are interested in what their teens are reading. So I definitely don't try and stick too strictly to a a definition, but it's kind of more of a general sense of your audience. I'm curious, have there ever been any specific times when there's something you've taken out or a character that you've wanted in who was a bit older that you decided to keep out? Or is it just that you're going, you naturally have that instinct about where your characters need to be? Yeah, I think, I guess the natural instinct for a young adult is you have a young adult protagonist. So in YA, I think it would be very rare to kind of find a 50-year-old man who's your protagonist. Not many YA heroes are above 18, for instance, because people of that age range like to read about people like themselves. So that is a big part of it as well, I suppose. You're not really writing older protagonists uh, and that kind of is the natural way that you gravitate yourself into the young adult sphere I suppose. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense thank you. Right so I'd like to jump back and we're kind of jumping around a bit just the way our, our brains work but I want to jump back to uh, because there were some questions in the chat but we also have them about Chemical Hearts so that was made into a film and I was listening to a podcast and it was option before it was published. Is that true? Can you tell us a little more about how that came about? So I was very lucky in that I had the kind of whirlwind dream experience that a lot of authors hope for when selling their first book. I sold this two book deal to Penguin in the US, which then immediately got scouted by literary scouts and taken out to other countries. And so there was this three week time period of my life where I was constantly on phone calls with my agent, like, fielding auctions in Germany and Spain and France and all over the world. It was very overwhelming and strange. But amongst all of that, amongst all of this flurry and buzz when we were selling the book was the film buzz as well. So we, I signed with a film agent through my literary agent and it went out to studios and we had studios interested and I talked to producers. And then I think it was maybe a month after I had signed my initial deal with my publisher, we also sold the film rights or uh, option, sorry, option the film rights, which a surprising amount of books get optioned. And then that option, very small percentage of them actually carry over into a production. So that it was optioned before it was published. Yes. But it took a long time to then become a movie. Mm. And I don't know how comfortable you are sharing, so just share if you want to or not. But always curious about deals like those. If you want to share or can share what the that contract was and being optioned, Chemical Hearts. And if not the details, generalities. Like if a writer, if it does get optioned, what can a writer expect? Or maybe there's not generalities with this. Curious your perspective. Yeah, I won't share specifics, but I'll give um, general kind of rough guides. So an, an option... It's kind of like a rental fee, basically. You are giving them the option of maybe one day making your book into a movie or a TV show. 
Now the option can really range from like, and it's kind of paid in yearly installments. So they might option it for a year, they might option it for two years and you get a fee each time they renew it. It could be $500, it could be $100,000. There are some writers who live on their movie options because it's just a kind of source of free income for them. For me, my option was much smaller than my eventual greenlit deal ended up being. So you get this option fee, and then in your option contract is how much you will get if the movie gets made. And it's kind of this thing that they dangle in front of you, like, because it's so unlikely to happen, this number just kind of sits there on paper, mm. taunting you. Uh, but in, in my case, I was lucky and it did get made. And then the option fee translated then into a payment from Amazon to buy the rights and make the film. Congrats, because I, I you are right. There is a very slim chance of it getting made, so it's incredible. And then what a feat! How I'm curious the difference between the film and the book. Mm. Where are there differences? What are the differences? Are you happy about the differences or similarities? Are you happy with the production? Obviously, this is being recorded. So <laughs> <laughs> I was really happy with the production, and I think. The reason that I was so happy with it was because I went in with a very open mind and I went in with the understanding that this was another person's piece of art that they were devoting two years of their life to and that it was not my role to stand over their shoulder and critique every decision that they made. My role was to support and encourage and provide advice when it was needed but to really kind of just embrace the process and watch as this new beautiful piece of art was created. So of course it's going to be different. It's another person's interpretation of a story. It's not a carbon copy. It's not a scene for scene recreation. There have to be changes. It's a different language film to books. And I appreciated that. And so I was very willing to kind of let Richard, who is the screenwriter and the director, take it in the direction that he wanted. And ultimately, I think it's a pretty close adaptation. I think it is tonally different. I think the tone is sadder and more angsty in the movie. And that was a decision that Richard made and I was happy to go along with. And ultimately, I think it it led to a good experience for me because I didn't have these kind of tight expectations about what I wanted or what I needed from an adaptation. And so, yeah, I enjoyed watching another person's interpretation of my story. Mm. That's such a nice way and healthy way to look at it. It's someone else's art interpreting your story. That's great. Uh, So just a time check. We probably have time for maybe one question each, Parl, and then we can hand it over to you all. So if you do have questions, jump into the chat and share them. Hello, listeners. Just a note from us at the London Writers' Salon. Our interviews are recorded in front of a live online audience. And so at this point in the interview, we turn to audience questions. Would you like to be a part of the live audience and ask your own questions? Head to londonwriterscellon.com for more information. You can buy tickets to the online events or get free access to them as a member. Now, back to the interview. So I read somewhere that you've become interested in developing your own screenwriting skills so you can eventually adapt your own work if it comes to that to the screen in the future. How are you building those skills? So I'm trying to build my screenwriting skills in the same way that I built my novel writing skills in the beginning, which is just kind of 
diving in there and doing it. And when I started writing my first book, I was a teenager and I just was so full of ego and was like, I'm a genius. This is the best thing that anyone has ever written. And like, it was only that mindset that got me through my first terrible draft of a book. And now I'm older and wiser and more full of fear. I find myself so kind of paralyzed by not being perfect, like not really knowing, like I read a lot of screenplays the same way that I read a lot of books to become a good writer, but it's hard. I mean, it is like speaking, like learning a different language. And I feel so confident now in my abilities as a, as an author, because I've sharpened and honed these tools for more than a decade. But as a screenwriter, I feel like I'm learning to walk all over again. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I'm just kind of crashing through and feeling my way through the process of telling a story in a different way. So that's what I've been doing up until this point. And I am hoping to take some kind of course at the National Film and TV School next year when kind of the world opens up again, just to get kind of some formal structure around how to tackle this beast. That's really exciting. I'm really curious about this difference between writing novels and writing for screen. Are there any particular skills you feel that you've, or particular ways of writing that you've had to learn or unlearn from your novel writing? Yeah, I've never been a good short story writer either because I need about 80,000 words to get my point across. So having to pare back, uh, the way that they do in screenplays, like it's so sparse and it's really, it leaves so much room for other people in the telling of the story, right? So you're not supposed to describe exactly what the room looks like or, you know, the smell of the character's perfume or anything like that. It's not for you. It's for someone else to decide. And I think relinquishing that control as an author is, uh, I'm used to being like playing God, essentially. Like I get to decide everything. I get to decide the weather, the character's costume. I get to decide what they look like, what they say, what the room is like. And in a screenplay, you relinquish so much of that control. So it's just about letting go, I think, is what I've uh, been trying to teach myself as I push through this, this first draft. That's fascinating. Thank you. Crystal, thank you so much. This has been a treat. We have loved this and we would love, uh, remember to send those graphs to us and we will send those out to everyone if you're willing. But thank you so much. This has been lovely getting into your your mind and your process and we wish you so much luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're both so wonderful and I'm so grateful for this amazing community that you've built. Oh, great. Well, will we see you sometime this week in a writer's hour? You will, I'll be around. All right, good. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. 
We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.